Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today is the Senior Public Defender, Belinda Rigg. She will tell us about the role of public defenders and talk about how Defence Council can assist a person who has been convicted by presenting relevant evidence and making submissions to the sentencing judge. Welcome, Belinda. Thank you very much for having me, Peter. Belinda, um, can you just give us a little idea of your career in the law? You started as a barrister at a fairly young age, is that right? Yes, that's right. I didn't practice as a solicitor, which is a reasonably unusual step. Um, it worked well for me. I um, had undertaken some research for a criminal QC while I was completing my uh, practical training with the College of Law and decided that I wanted to go straight to the bar and was particularly interested in crime. So I went straight to the bar without practising as a solicitor. And I was at, uh, in private practice for a number of years, um, undertaking criminal work, but also some common law work and employment and industrial law. That was a pretty bold step for a, a <laughs> 24-year-old uh, lady uh, with practical experience in the law. Uh, the motivation must have been very strong. Yes, it was. I, um, I was strongly motivated to... Um, to become involved in court and present cases myself if I was able to do so and was particularly interested in criminal law. And I was very lucky that the uh, criminal QC um, with whom I worked undertaking research work was, was very encouraging of, of me to, to do that. So it was, it was a happy time and um, I felt positive about that, that move. But I was the only female on my floor when I started started I'm at not, the Bar. I'm not surprised. No. <laughs> That's changed a bit now, though, hasn't it's it? It's changed very significantly, yes. Mm. And that, that floor now has a, a large amount of, of women and public defenders have a, a very high proportion of practitioners who are women. Well, you became a member of the public defenders in 2004. Four. 2004? 2004, yes. Uh, and... Uh, then became the senior public defender in 2019. Yes, that's right. When you joined the public defenders, how many women were there? Oh, at that stage, it was a lower proportion than now, but there were um, some wonderful um, women who were there. Um, now Justice Dina Yehia was there, and I remember her very kindly taking me out to lunch on my very first day as a public defender. Um, Judge Leonie Flannery was there at that time, and some, a number of women who've now retired, um, you might recall, uh, Peter, some uh, appellate uh, practitioners such as Robin Burgess um, was, was a woman on the floor at that time. Um, uh, now Justice um, Chrissa Lucas Carlson was a member of the floor at that time. But it was a lower proportion of the floor than is currently the case. And today, what's the proportion of women who are public defenders? I'm not entirely sure, uh, but I would say that it's very close, close to half. Now, uh, as senior public defender, I assume you have oversight and management of the whole office. Yes, that's right. It, it is run essentially like barristers' chambers, but there is a difference because we're statutory office holders and I have a statutory obligation to oversee um, the, the work and efficiency of the public defender's work. 
the public defenders themselves are all advocates, they're all in the court. Yes, that's right. How, how does the work come to them and where does it come from? So public defenders are salaried barristers who work, who are employed by the government but work independently of the government. Um, all of our work involves representing accused people who are charged with serious criminal offences and who have a grant of legal aid. So the work might come from the Legal Aid Commission itself, that is, an in-house legal aid solicitor might brief a public defender, or the work might come from the Aboriginal Legal Service briefing a public defender, or often um, a, public, a, a private law firm will have a grant of legal aid and they then need to see whether a public defender is available to appear in the case. If a person's been granted legal aid yes. for the defence of a serious criminal charge, yes. uh, does that mean they, they don't pay anything, the state pays for their defence? That will depend upon the circumstances and I don't um, fortunately have to become too much involved in the, the grants um, side of things which is worked out by legal aid. Sometimes it will be the case that they're required to contribute something if they have sufficient money to contribute something. But very often it will be the case that they don't, they don't ha- have any, uh, anything to contribute and don't contrib- contribute financially at all. When you say serious charges, what should we have in mind? Murder is obviously a very serious charge. Yes, not all public defenders... Uh, public defenders uh, appear in um, a large proportion of murder proceedings in this state, but not all public defenders will appear in m- murder proceedings. Trials that are run in the district and Supreme Court uh, will, will, will often have a public defender appearing for the accused. So um, in the district court, there's serious indictable matters that are dealt with in the district court are at different levels, but it will be the more serious sexual assaults and serious drug charges and serious offences of violence within the district court where a public defender will be appearing. And then... Um, all offences that are dealt with in the Supreme Court, so murders, terrorism matters, um, and, and all the matters within the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Now, obviously, when some people are charged, they may uh, admit the offence and plead guilty. Will public defenders appear in those circumstances? Y- yes, certainly. Uh, depending on the nature of the charge, is Yes, it? yes. Uh, and uh, then others, of course, plead not guilty yes. and goes to trial. Yes, and there are many in between who might not initially admit their guilt but come down the track to, to plead guilty and public defenders, if a public defender is briefed, will be representing them throughout that process and in the sentence proceedings. And obviously some trials take a long time. Yes, that's M- right. Many weeks, others are much quicker. Yes. Um, but uh, in, in terms of the time that you yourself would spend in court, every year. Are you in court most weeks? Uh, I'm not in court most weeks now, or depend upon the, the, the year. In the first half of this year, I was certainly in court most weeks. In the second half of this year, I'm in court not most weeks. I'm focusing more back on the management and policy side of my work, and also I have some large appellate briefs that I need to, to take care of. So not as much time in court um, in the second half of this year as there was in the first half, for example. Appellate briefs, uh, briefs in the Court of Criminal Appeal and the High Court? Yes, public defenders um, accept briefs to advise and appear in both of those jurisdictions, and I, I do so as well. So I will um, accept briefs to advise in Court of Criminal Appeal matters and High Court matters. W- what happens in relation to people who want to appeal in a criminal case 
where they've been convicted and sentenced who want a grant of legal aid is that they don't they, they need to pass not just the means test but also a merit test. So when someone's charged with a serious criminal offence and is going to trial or to be sentenced, they really just need to have their means looked at, whether they don't have enough money to otherwise obtain legal representation. But because legal aid resources are scarce, there's additionally um, a requirement to pass a merit test before people will be granted legal aid for the purposes of appeal. So what that usually involves is council providing an advice as to whether there are reasonable prospects of success on appeal, either against conviction or sentence, to the Court of Criminal Appeal. And because of the, um, the, the nature of that work, it, it really means that a, a lot of the appellate work is undertaken without going to court, because in the majority of cases it will be determined that there are in fact not reasonable prospects of success and an advice needs to be prepared rather than submissions prepared and going to court to argue the case. Now, the podcast series, of course, is concerned with sentencing. Yes. I'd like to talk to you about how you approach uh, the sentencing hearing yes. for someone who's been convicted or indeed for someone who's pleaded guilty. Yes. Uh, can you tell us what steps you go through in order to prepare these submissions for someone on uh, at their sentence hearing? Yes, certainly. There are a number of steps involved. involved. Where someone has pleaded guilty... Uh, the parties will usually endeavour to prepare a document that's really an agreed set of facts for the sentencing judge. So the, the, the prosecution um, will serve a brief of evidence, which is uh, which it, it, the statements and other documentary material that have been obtained by the police in the investigation of the matter. And the, the, the prosecution and the defence will try to um, come to an agreement as to the factual matters that support the offence the person is going to plead guilty to and set out such relevant background as is apparent from that brief of evidence that will assist the court. So in the majority of cases that's able to be done, that is a, a set of agreed facts prepared for the sentencing judge. Sometimes there will be a dispute about that, that is the prosecution wants to press one aspect of the case which one witness or a number of witnesses um, support, but the offender himself or herself says didn't happen or doesn't properly reflect the offending behaviour. And in those cases, there'll need then to be a hearing where the witnesses are perhaps cross-examined during the sentence proceedings. So that's really the first step where someone has pleaded guilty. Where there's been a trial, we will endeavour to... Well, both parties will endeavour to try to point to those parts of the evidence that they want or suggest the judge should accept as setting out the factual circumstances surrounding the, f the offending. And that's really a matter for the judge to decide. The do judge you, is only... Do you make submissions in writing in relation to the facts? Yes, often that will be done because the, the judge is only bound... The judge is bound by the jury's verdict in the sense of having to find facts that cover the elements of the offence the person has been um, found guilty of. But often there'll be a whole lot of um, questions that are left unresolved by that bare decision and the judge has to make a decision about those factual issues which will sometimes be of quite, um, quite great significance in looking at the seriousness of the offence. So that's one part of preparing the matter for sentence. But when, when one is acting for someone who is the offender, there's a lot that needs to be done to um, present that person's 
case on sentence. And really, this is the, the whole issue of explaining, if it's possible, why the offence um, was committed and what that person is like and what this offending and the person's background and all of their circumstances mean what can be taken from it to um, see what the future holds. They're what we call, I think, the subjective matters. Yes. The facts, of, the facts of the crime, as it were, are the objective matters and the features of the offender are the subjective matters. Yes, although there's some, there's some crossover, really, between them to some extent um, because, for example, the, the reasons why someone has committed a crime, their, their motivation, their degree of planning or deliberation about it, whether they've been provoked, um, whether there was some type of duress but not amounting to a defence, those types of considerations will bear upon the seriousness of the offence uh, as well. And there are a lot of background considerations that bear upon what's regarded or described currently as the offender's moral culpability for the offending. And there are a whole range of background considerations that um, are well understood to bear upon that issue, looking at the offender's blameworthiness for what they've done. So things such as um, uh, mental illness, cognitive impairment or a background of social deprivation, for example. They're the type of, of background circumstances that are really important to understand and get across to the court because they will, um, in many ways, bear upon the, the just outcome in the individual case. And where does Defence Council go to get evidence on those matters? It will depend upon the individual person, the individual offender. So you'll know something about the individual offender from the instructions that you have received from your instructing solicitor, but also um, your own in involvement in conferences with the, with the offender. For the purposes of sentencing, um, sometimes it's the case that the offender themselves will give evidence. And so that can be, it can be quite a, a drawn out process obtaining all the details from a person that might be relevant to the sentence proceedings. Often that can then be put together in an affidavit form with the person then being prepared to be cross-examined about it in court. Is that, will you call an offender both when they've pleaded guilty and when there's been a trial or only when they've pleaded guilty? Um, often when they've pleaded not guilty and have been convicted, they're maintaining afterwards that they're, they're not guilty. Right. So it may be that their evidence is is um, more problematic, perhaps. It may not be worth quite as much. It may not be worth quite as much. Yeah. Whereas there are often people who have pleaded guilty who, who really are very genuinely remorseful for what they've done. It, it isn't always easy to call those people to give evidence because there are often limitations on their ability to explain themselves. There may be problematic aspects of what it is they would like to talk about. But that is one option, is, is calling evidence from the person who has pleaded guilty but we often as well obtain uh, psychiatric and psychological reports that are put forward on behalf of an offender, particularly if they have a diagnosed cognitive impairment or mental illness. But often, just even in a more um, diffuse way, they explain the, the background of the person because the, the expert has gone through that background with the offender themselves and often looked at a huge amount of documentation that's capable of supporting that background that ex that's explained by the offender. So we might have 
records from hospitals, from schools, um, from Justice Health who look after people once they're in custody. And also the prosecution is part of the, the, the personal or subjective circumstances. The prosecution will provide the sentencing judge with the offender's criminal history, uh, which is a, the record itself, but sometimes even uh, the facts of individual charges, if they're particularly relevant to the offence the judge is going to be sentencing the person for. So there's some of the ways that we will um, prepare for putting the offender's case forward um, on sentence, getting evidence perhaps from the offender, um, expert reports, or calling uh, character witnesses, either in person or um, in terms of um, doc documentary material references that might be advanced. Um, th there's also, um, I think, one of the topics that you've indicated, Peter, that you're interested in is the, the Bug Me Bar book. Mm. And I can speak about that also because that's a resource... Yeah. Tell us about the Bug Me book. So f following from that case, one of the issues that arose from the High Court's decision in that case was the need to have evidence available to explain the particular circumstances of the background of deprivation, if it exists, or exposure to alcohol and violence and matters of the kind that were considered in Bugmi um, by, by the High Court. So there are a couple of aspects to that. One aspect is looking at the individual person's background. So you will need to have evidence before the court either from the offender or from members of their community or from an expert report, looking at what their personal circumstances actually are. But what the Bug Me Bar Book is, is a resource that's available to practitioners to um, provide courts with assistance in understanding the um, academic research that has been undertaken in relation to some key areas of um, disadvantage that commonly arise in the sentencing process. Um, th this arose originally from a group of people, the Bug Me Bar Book project included representatives of the public defenders and the Aboriginal Legal Service and Legal Aid and some academics looking at how this material might be gathered together in a way that was suitable for presentation on sentence. And we now have a number of chapters that are um, in a form available on the Public Defender's website, which can also be accessed via the, the, JERS, the Judicial Commission website, which present information to provide to the court uh, about particular areas of um, relevant background disadvantage, such as um, exposure to domestic and family violence or cultural dispossession or... Um, interrupted school attendance and suspension. And they're different chapters that can be accessed electronically. And each of those um, extracts from major reports and leading academic research. And so it's compiled by a researcher under the supervision of a senior legal academic or legal practitioner nominated by the committee. And this is then assigned to an expert in the field for review to ensure accuracy and comprehensiveness. And all chapters are then reviewed as well by an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander member of the Independent Advisory Panel. And these are chapters that can then be handed up in court to the judge to explain not the particular person, but the, um, the well-recognised 
ramifications. The understanding that we have yes, of what they of mean. those situations. The, the, these chapters are available to anyone who goes to the public defender's website, is that...? Yes, they are, yes. Right. Is it in hard copy or is it just electronically it's, available? They're available electronically, but they can be printed and so they're generally handed up in hard copy to sentencing judges. There, there is the, the prosecution... That we have. There's a, a, a prosecutor, there are representatives of the prosecution on the uh, uh, Bugmy Bar Book uh, Committee and it's the case that, generally speaking, the prosecution... Um, takes no opposition with the provision of these chapters in court to sentencing judges. Um, whether they're relevant or not will depend on whether the the defence counsel has otherwise put material before the court to establish... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the this. relationship. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes. Now, tell me, uh, when you come to make submissions to the judge, all of the evidence is in and gathered together, uh, how do you go about seeking to persuade the judge... Uh, as, uh, of the appropriate sentence for your client. How do you frame your submissions? There are a number of uh, preliminary uh, considerations that need to be um, really decided. The first is whether the, the threshold that's set out in Section 5 of the um, Crime Sentencing Procedure Act has been crossed. That is, whether it is inevitable, it is a case where someone needs to receive a jail sentence of some sort. I take it that's obvious in some cases. Yes. But are there many cases where it's not so obvious? Y- yes, that's right. There are quite quite a number. Unfortunately, I'm generally not appearing in those. Yeah. Your, your clients have done things bad enough to put them in jail. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yes, generally. But yeah. often that will be a really important thing that needs to be prepared by a public defender or other defence advocate urging the position that that threshold has not been crossed and someone should not receive a a, a custodial sentence of any form. Once that threshold has been crossed, um, it's important then to look in appropriate cases at options other than full-time custody. Of which there are now a number. That's right. And the the, the way that they are looked at now is is interesting because, for example, the, um, the... option of an intensive corrections order is one which recognises that often the risks of recidivism, which really need to be considered looking at the protection of the community, um, might be addressed better by someone staying in the community and being supervised with appropriate programs than receiving a sentence of imprisonment for for two years or a short period that that, that the ICO provisions look at. So that's an, the next important step that a defence counsel would, would look at. Is the threshold crossed? If it is, does it need to be full-time custody? And that's then a, a matter about which you would address submissions to the judge based upon all of the relevant circumstances of the case. And this is being done orally or in writing? It's normally done both ways. In my experience, for serious matters, where, especially where there's a live argument as to whether someone should receive something other than full-time custody, there would normally be written submissions provided to the sentencing judge. And then, having made submissions about whether or not full-time custody, and I, I take it submissions would then be made if it's decided or if the argument is there shouldn't be full-time custody, yes. submissions are made as to the type of community yes. order that might be appropriate. Yes. Um, and does counsel ever get down to talking about how long a person should be uh, sentenced uh, to what, what? What term of sentence might be appropriate? No, generally not in that sense. 
it, it may be, um, a, with one exception, if it's a case where the Crown is contending that the maximum penalty should be imposed, so for example the maximum penalty of life imprisonment for murder should be imposed, or, um, the, uh, or a, f- a finite maximum penalty in other cases, there will then be sub- specific submissions that that is a figure or that, that should not be imposed. Too high. It's too, it is, it's, it's, it, all of the circumstances of the offence and offender do, are not so grave as to warrant the maximum penalty. But other than that, we generally don't make submissions about the actual number of you years. You don't say things like the sentence should not exceed 10 years or no. five years? You don't say things like that? No. There are some exceptions. So, for example, in, in relation to some criminal offences, there are guideline judgments. So where there's a guideline judgment, submissions will be directed quite closely to comparison with the key features of the guideline judgment and submissions advanced as to whether the case is more serious or less serious um, than the particular guideline judgment. Um, similarly, where there is a co-offender, then the principle of parity requires quite close consideration with the actual sentence of imprisonment that was imposed, imposed on the other on the other mm. on the comparable offender. Mm. Um, but but those are rare circumstances where there's another case with a specific number of years indicated to which comparison is made. Comparable sentences can be provided to the judge. Uh, so long as they set out a, a good array that is relevant to the offending, the the offending that's before the court, but there are significant limitations on the use that's able to be be drawn of that, drawn from from those cases. What about the statistics kept by the judicial commission? Do yes. defence counsel use those statistics? Defence counsel do often use those statistics. Again, there are limitations on the use to be made of them, and it's, the the use of them is quite can be quite blunt at times. Um, there's what is perhaps of more significance or more assistance is going into the links that are now provided on the Judicial Commission website with, with those sentencing statistics to some of the individual cases that, that comprise those that, that range. And those links will then provide better information as to whether there's been a plea of guilty or not, whether the person has prior criminal convictions, uh, matters of that kind, that then give a bit more detail. The whole picture. Give a bit more detail, yes. Yes. Um, Now, let's assume that your client has been sentenced. Yes. um, And he or she doesn't like the sentence, particularly thinks it's too high. Yes. What happens uh, as far as Defence Counsel is concerned in that event? So usually Defence Counsel would advise the client of their entitlement to have an appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeal considered. Um, Normally, in my situation, there will be clients who need a grant of legal aid, so they'll be advised to make an application for a fresh grant So you would advise, if you want to pursue the matter, you'll have to go off and make an application or uh, go to jail and make an application (laughs) for legal aid. That's right. And sometimes I would... uh, Sometimes counsel who have appeared at sentence will keep the matter for the purposes of considering appeal. Sometimes it's considered by uh, a fresh set of eyes and alternate counsel will look at it. Now, I can imagine that many people who are sentenced think the sentence is, is too high. What sort of percentage would uh, justify an appeal in the eyes of the Public Defender's Office? I don't know, Peter, really, in terms of percentages. Um, but I can say that by the time they come to us, Legal Aid Indictable Appeals Unit have really weeded out a, 
a large portion, well, I don't know whether it's a large portion, but some of the applications. So people will put in an application for legal aid. They're very experienced solicitors within the indictable appeals team at Legal Aid. So in some matters where it's obvious that they will say, no, you're not having a grant of legal aid. So it never gets to... It never gets to counsel. But a lot of matters do, do come to counsel, so a public defender will accept a brief to advise if there's a public defender available. Otherwise, there are a number of private barristers who will accept briefs to advise as well in relation to appellate matters. And so um, what then needs to be considered is whether there are reasonable prospects of success on appeal. And there are a couple of other issues in terms of the legal aid test, but that's the main issue that's of importance, is working out whether there are reasonable prospects of success on appeal. Um, and you mentioned that the, the person might think that the sentence was too high. It's, um, of course, not as simple as being able to go there and say that the sentence is too high. It's a, it's a court of error in relation to sentence appeals and the um, the the process is governed by the sections five and six of the Criminal Appeal Act, and you have to take that into account in advising whether there are reasonable prospects of success or not. Now, I assume sometimes there's been a conviction followed by the sentencing of the offender. Yes. But there are perhaps some appeal grounds in relation to the conviction. Yes. Uh, what happens in those circumstances? Uh, if an appeal is advised, the appeal will be lodged against conviction. Yes. Would a sentence appeal, if that was brought, also come at the same time? Do they come together? Normally they do, but they don't inevitably need to. In unusual circumstances, a conviction appeal can actually be heard prior to a person being sentenced, um, or sometimes because merit has been found on conviction but not on sentence, there will only be a conviction appeal and not, not a, a sentence appeal. Um, but it is only in reasonably unusual circumstances that a conviction appeal will be heard before a person has been sentenced. Usually what happens is everyone waits until after the person has been sentenced and then consideration is given at the same time to the issue of whether there are reasonable prospects of success on conviction or sentence or both of them. And the same counsel will generally look at both of those issues. Now, I think if you've been convicted, you have a right of appeal in relation to your conviction. You have a. Uh, it depends on whether what's involved is a question of law, yeah. or a question of fact, or a mixed question of law and fact. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of cases, leave is required, so it's an application for leave to appeal. Um, uh, but that is usually granted if there's merit in the um, in the, um, the the application itself. And. If it's just a sentence appeal, I think you need the leave of the Court of Criminal Appeal. Yes, that's right. Um, there used to be, I think, in the olden days, as they say, a capacity in the Court of Criminal Appeal when considering a uh, convicted person's appeal against sentence yes. uh, to actually increase the sentence. Does yes. that ever happen these days? It, 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 it tends not to happen um, because what, what would usually be required is a, a similar... Um, consideration of procedural fairness as happens in the district court when this happens frequently that someone will appeal from the local court to the district court. If the district court judge thinks that a heavier sentence should have been imposed, they provide what's called a Parker warning to the applicant saying, well, look, I, if I really go on to decide this, there's a significant prospect I might give a heavier sentence than the one you already have. 
what that does is it alerts the person to the danger of their sentence being increased and they might choose to withdraw the appeal. Uh, traditionally, that, that hasn't really been needed to be done in the Court of Criminal Appeal, but following the High Court's decision in Kentwell and the Queen, be, because the Court of Criminal Appeal is itself considering resentence, it may be that as a result of that independent analysis, the judicial officer, each of the judges of the bench, uh, or, or one of them, is of the view that a higher sentence should be passed. Sometimes it could be the case that during the course of oral argument, that prospect is brought to the attention of appeal counsel, but the, usually the proper result in a case such as that would simply be that the appeal is dismissed because the court has not found that a lesser sentence is warranted in law. That is, the court wouldn't go on to, in, in fact, increase the sentence. Now, our hypothetical, hypothetical offender may still be troubled by the decision of the Court of Criminal Appeal. Yes. Is there a capacity to go from the Court of Criminal Appeal to the High Court? Special leave applications to the High Court are m- much more difficult still than uh, applications for leave to the Court of Criminal Appeal because apart from error, the High Court will need to be persuaded that the, the, the matter is one of... Um, importance in a general sense to the administration of law and it's quite rare that that is the case in sentence proceedings although there have been over the last couple of decades quite a lot more decisions of the High Court in relation to sentencing than there there were prior to that. So that there is capacity to to again um, make an application for special leave to appeal to the High Court but those applications are very rarely granted. And in relation to the provision of legal aid, again, uh, counsel briefed to advise is very conscious of the need not just to show error in the individual case, but to demonstrate that the case is really one which um, considers an important matter of principle that the High Court should be involved, become involved in for um, clarifying law which is uncertain, um, particularly if it involves... Um, jurisdictions beyond New South Wales, but particularly if it's a matter of general public importance. Now, Belinda, you've been involved in the criminal law for many years. Yes. Do you ever say to yourself, it's about time I should go and do some civil law, or are you happy to stay with the crime? I'm happy to stay with the crime. Can you tell us why? What What is it that attracts you to the crime? Um, criminal law is an area of law which I think is, um, it goes deeply to our humanity and our understanding of human nature and what it is in the good and bad sense that people are capable of doing. Um, I think it's important for people who don't have adequate resources to be well represented in the criminal justice system and that's why I have found um, happiness in being a public defender rather than a private practitioner. Uh, But uh, criminal law just addresses so many aspects of what is important about a just system, a just community uh, functioning and dealing with its its members who are are hurt, who suffer trauma, who who offend, um, who need assistance. It used to be the case when I was a barrister that sometimes at a dinner party you'd be challenged as to how is it possible that you could appear for that terrible person 
who'd been on the front page of the newspaper allegedly committing a serious crime. Yes. Do you get challenged in that way yourself? Yes, I do. Sometimes I've had that question asked of me um, many times, yes. And what's your answer? I'm sure it comes out differently each time, but the, the, the core aspect of it is, is one which um, comes back to a belief in the, um, uh, the, the dignity, core dignity of all human beings and the importance of our criminal justice system functioning fairly. And for our criminal justice system to function fairly, everyone who's involved in it needs to be working um, as an expert within their own area of expertise, either as a practitioner or as defence counsel or as a judicial officer, to understand the law well and apply it to the best of their ability. And if that happens, and then the, the system as a whole functions fairly. And because of that, it, it doesn't matter what the individual person um, has done or is alleged to have done. There needs to be that commitment to all people charged with criminal offences. Yes, I've often heard it said that if the barrister was to decide not to appear, mm. uh, to choose whether or not to appear, effectively the barrister becomes the judge. Yes. Uh, whereas if the barrister accepts the responsibility to appear, yes. then the judge is allowed uh, his or her proper role yes, in the criminal good, justice process. That's a very apt way of looking at it, that's right. Belinda, thank you very much for coming and talking with us today. I'm sure those listening will have been fascinated to have a little insight into the public defender's role and the way you approach the sentencing of uh, offenders. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's been a, a pleasure, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. You have been listening to the New South Wales Senior Public Defender, Belinda Rigg. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.